1: Welcome to another episode of the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. I'm Joe Sullivan, your host and a co-founder of the industrial marketing agency, gorilla 76, where we help B2B manufacturers grow through revenue-focused marketing programs. Automation can be intimidating. What if the sizable CapEx investment we make doesn't generate the return we expected? What if our people struggle with operating the robots? And how will they deal with this kind of operational change in general? All fair questions and real concerns for manufacturing leaders today. My guest on this episode is the founder and CEO of an automation provider that's lowering the barrier to entry through outcome-based robotic solutions and shifting the investment from CapEx to OpEx. Let me introduce him. Saman Farid is the founder of Formic, the leading robotics-as-a-service provider, enabling SMB and mid-market U.S. industrial businesses to easily bring automation into their production processes. He's been involved with technology and robotics throughout his career, building and selling two technology companies. Prior to Formic, Saman ran the Global Investment Fund for Baidu Ventures, focusing on AI, machine learning, and its effects on the way we work and live. He's the founder of Comet Labs, an AI-focused investment fund and incubator, and currently serves as an investor or board member for a mix of 25-plus robotics, technology, and AI-focused businesses. Saman resides in the San Francisco Bay Area, is passionate about youth empowerment, and works with local nonprofits to promote technology education. Saman, welcome to the show. Joe, thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Well, it's my pleasure, Salman, and uh, I would love to have you kick things off by telling us a little bit about your career journey that's led you to where you are today as founder and CEO of Formic.
2: Yeah, I've always been a, a tinker, loved making things. I started my first company when I was 14, building, assembling computers and building kind of computer networks for people and have constantly been passionate about trying to figure out ways that technology can actually be applied to our lives. So I helped build manufacturing facilities across China. I helped build clean energy businesses. I helped build kind of telecom fiber lines across New York city. I helped start an e-commerce business and Ivy television software infrastructure business, both of which I sold. I ran a variety of different investment funds, totaling about $800 million of uh, investment capital across Comet Labs and, and Baidu Ventures. And really about 15 years ago, saw the changes around AI and machine learning. Alex's net paper came out and deep learning started to have a real impact in the world that we live in. And I became obsessed with figuring out how that's going to be applied in every sector. And so as an investor, it was relatively straightforward you know i helped incubate and build and invest in a bunch of different companies and in 2020 i started to get really frustrated because robotics in particular the rate of adoption was extremely low and while the technology was moving so quickly and robots were becoming so much more capable when i looked around the world and compared it to a sci-fi movie that i would watch i would just constantly be disappointed right like why is it that when you go to a factory or a construction site or a farm, you still don't see a lot of robots out there helping us. And at the same time, labor shortage is worse than it's ever been. This company was started, you know, right in the middle of the pandemic, where there was, you know, empty store shelves and supply chain issues and all of this manufacturing uncertainty. And I just thought to myself, look, there has to be a better way, right? We have all this incredible technology. We have to get it into the hands of the people who need it, so that we can produce more and create a world of abundance. We can create. A more vibrant manufacturing sector in America. We can create more jobs. Like, What's really, really needed here is a massive influx of technology into the world that needs it the most. And so Formic was really started with that mission is like, how do we drastically increase that adoption curve?
1: Well, I love it. And if you read the homepage of the Formic website, it says, we design, deploy, and maintain your automation solution for $0, pay nothing until the machines are producing for you. And I know you guys have a really unique model. I'd love to let you talk about it here.
2: Yeah, you know, the simple version of it is that when we spoke to manufacturing facilities, there's ultimately two reasons why people had not adopted automation. Number one is that it's risky, and number two is that it's difficult. <laughs> it's just such a giant lift for manufacturing facilities, right? Like if you are spending your time kind of becoming an expert at making chocolate chip cookies or making plastic parts for the automotive industry or, you know, becoming a CNC machining expert, all of those are incredibly deep fields that require lots and lots of years of experience. And then somebody comes to you and says, on top of that, by the way, like go learn a lot about robots and figure out how to make them work for your facility. It's just a giant ask. And so all but the biggest companies in the world have still not adopted automation. When we talked to factories, they said, "It's been I've been trying to automate for the last 10 years, and I know I'm going to go out of business if I don't automate. We hear that a lot from manufacturers. And still... I don't have any robots right or I, I bought a robot a few years ago and it's sitting in the corner collecting dust because you know we couldn't get it to work and that risk and that complexity is the thing that we're trying to take away so with Formic, we said okay well we do spend all of our time thinking about robots we are experts in the technology behind automation and we're experts in the kind of operational side of like what it takes to make these systems work well so why don't we take on the risk instead of our customer so that was really the founding premise of the business right and so when we go to factories we say look pay zero capex, you don't pay us a single penny until we get the system installed and running. And then you pay an hourly rate for the usage of that system. And that hourly rate has a service level agreement associated with it. So if we say we're gonna pack six boxes per minute and we're packing five boxes per minute, we're in violation of our service level, right? And so it's you're really paying for outcomes. And on the flip side, we take care of all the complexity behind the scenes, right? All of the software, all of the programming and reprogramming, all of the maintenance, spare parts, installation, engineering, everything is paid for and and managed by Formic. And it really makes it so that it's as easy as calling a temp agency. You can just call Formic, we'll fill your empty headcount with with robots. And we've seen incredible progress. It's been only barely three years since we started the company. We're now in 60-plus plants across the U.S. And we have hundreds of robots deployed across lots and lots of those facilities and every single time what these customers tell us is that this is the only way that that robots have been accessible to me and now all of a sudden it seems like a viable po- uh, option. So, that's something we're really proud of is that, you know, we we wanted to make it accessible and it seems like we're not doing that. Well, congrats and sounds like you guys
1: are off to a really fast start and just based on conversations I've had with manufacturing leaders it seems like you're solving for some of the biggest fears out there right now, which is making that big investment without really understanding it or Having a fear of, you know, are we going to be able to support this system once the the integrator walks out the door and we're, we're on our own with it. So it makes a lot of sense.
2: Yeah. And you know, I think the integrator business model is they want to bite off the hardest technical problems. And then they want to charge you for engineering hours to go and solve these hard problems. Which is great, but that doesn't always match up with what's the most useful thing for the facility. And so the the benefit of us is that we're kind of, we set this up so that we're incentive aligned with our customers, right? Like we don't benefit from selling you more complicated stuff. We don't benefit from selling you more hardware or, you know, adding equipment that we don't need. We only benefit if we're getting the outcome, (laughs) that you want, right? Which is five boxes per minute or 10 boxes per minute or whatever it is. And so that incentive alignment just means that the way we operate is completely different. We've built a bunch of software that automates the kind of design and scoping process. We built a bunch of software that does all the management operation and maintenance. We have a command center where our technicians are looking at a monitor of all the robots that we have deployed. They're looking at all the sensor data. As soon as there's any kind of anomaly, we remotely log in if we can fix it remotely, we remotely fix it. If we can't, we send a technician on site. Before the customer even notices that there's any downtime or any issues. And that level of proactiveness comes from the fact that we are incentive aligned. Right? If the system is not running, we're not making money. <laughs> and so we have the same goal as our customer, which is maximize production and productivity. It just feels better. Right? It feels like we're doing something useful for our customer. And the customers recognize it too, right? A lot of them have said, hey, Formic has skin in the game. That's something that I value as a user of the automation. Yeah, you win or lose together, I think it probably
1: creates a true feeling of partnership from the beginning, which can be a tough thing to otherwise achieve. So very cool. Well, Salman, let's talk about labor a little bit. I've I've been running this podcast coming up on four years here, and it's been, it's hard to escape the topic of labor. And every time I have a conversation about automation, it, of course, finds its way into the conversation. Whether you're in downtown Chicago or the middle of Nebraska, we all know that it's a problem, right? And so I'd love to just hear from your perspective, you know, how do you see... The labor issue right now and you know how is automation working to sort of combat it
2: yeah the labor issue is extremely challenging right i think uh, when we talk to a lot of facilities they say they have something between 30 to 40 percent turnover sometimes per month right like that's the that in, in the most extreme facilities that we've talked to 30 percent per month headcount turnover it's just uh, unbelievable you know, the average across the u.s manufacturing industry is 100 percent per year turnover so these manufacturing facilities are, are constantly trying to fill empty headcount not only that, the utilization of these plants is extremely low. So, if you look at a typical factory in America, they run about two or 3,000 hours per year. And that's out of 8,600 possible hours of production time. So, just to kind of put some numbers on it, that means there's roughly 75% of the time American factories are sitting idle. <laughs> and that's just a kind of crazy statistic to me. They already paid for the facility, the floor space, the roofing, the air conditioners, the forklifts, the machinery, the CNC machines, all of this stuff has been built and installed. And then it sits around and collects dust for 75% of the time. No wonder that we're not competitive with global manufacturing, right? If we are running our plant, you know, eight hours a day, and somebody in China or Vietnam is running 24 hours a day, even if the labor cost was the same, it would be cheaper over there. And it's not the same, right? So we don't have a shot in hell of being competitive as American manufacturers unless and until we can drastically increase utilization of these plants so we've seen this for a lot of our customers we put in robots they're able to run you know they go from one shift a day to two shifts a day they're able to take more business on they're able to you know sometimes double their top line which but more importantly they're able to 5x their bottom line because all the fixed costs have already been paid for by the first shift now you have an entire second shift of production that is you know essentially free right you have a little bit of variable cost and raw material cost but Overall, your production costs are very, very low now. And so that's really the thing that we're striving towards, right? Labor is an input to a system, to like this kind of complex system of, of a factory. And what we found is that's historically been the bottleneck for American manufacturing. So if we are able to release that bottleneck and make it like instantly available, no cost, no expertise required, that means that the facilities are able to produce a lot more and be much more competitive globally. So they're winning a lot more business. And the flip side is their competitors other factories who don't automate are losing business, right? Like that's the kind of inevitable outcome of capitalism. Yeah, it makes plenty of sense. Are there any success stories you can tell from existing customers that you'd like to share? For a lot of them, unfortunately, we can't name them. But actually on our website, there are a lot of case studies, like some of the ones that we've listed publicly on our website. You know, One of them is Green Seed. They make their co-packing facility. They make a variety of different foods for a large CPG companies. And uh, we started with one system for them, and then we ended up putting three or four more systems in that facility. They were able to reduce their production costs 30 to 40%. They were able to increase their utilization of their plant. They went from one to two shifts a day and just completely helped them win a, a lot of new business. The same thing, another one is Compact Industries is one that we we listed. That's been an incredible case study. We started with one system, they, but they put in multiple more. We have you know just facilities all across the U.S. where We were able to start with one or two systems, something that they had been considering for a long time, but weren't able to pull the trigger on. It was just too complicated and too risky for them to do on their own. We came in, we put in the first few systems, they saw the benefits. And soon afterwards, we were able to put in multiple more systems. And we've seen that as a pretty common trend. About 70% of our customers, after they have the first system deployed with Formic, have come back for multiple more. And that's also really good validation for us. It feels like we're doing something useful (laughs) for our customers. They see the value, they see the impact that we have, and they're coming back for additional systems.
1: Okay, let's take a quick break here. I want to let a couple of our strategists at Gorilla76 tell you about something pretty cool that we're doing right now for marketing folks in the manufacturing sector. Peyton and Brendan, take it away.
3: So I'm Peyton Warren.
1: And I'm Brendan Forrest.
3: Twice a month, we host a live event called Industrial Marketing Live.
1: Right now, we have a group of 50-plus industrial marketers from a variety of manufacturing organizations that meet up digitally to learn, ask questions, network, and get smarter.
3: Every session has a designated topic, and one of our team members at gorilla 76 opens up by teaching for the first half hour or so. Topics have included how to do a better manufacturing webinar, getting started with paid social on LinkedIn, how to optimize your website for conversions, creating amazing video content, and so much more.
1: After we break it down, we open it up to Q&A so we can help you apply all of this in your own businesses.
3: This is pure value, no cost, no strings attached, no product or service pitches, just a 100% unadulterated learning experience.
1: And on top of these live sessions, we've also opened up a Slack channel where attendees bounce ideas off each other and learn together between sessions.
3: We're building a true community of manufacturing marketing professionals here. So if you or someone at your company has the word marketing in his or her job title, please consider telling them about it. They can visit industrialmarketinglive.com to register.
1: We'd love to see you there. Salman, I imagine one of the challenges for manufacturing leaders who are in the position that you described earlier, they know they need to automate or they're going to be out of business in 10 years, or they're going to be, you know losing market share, it's gonna be hard to keep up with competition. I imagine one of the challenges they're facing is just not knowing how to evaluate all the different companies that are selling automation services of some sort. And what advice can you offer manufacturing leaders about how to evaluate partners or vendors?
2: Yeah. I think the first question is, you know, do you DIY it or do you let somebody else manage it for you? So that's the kind of first dividing line. If you have in-house engineering capabilities, you have in-house robotics folks, and you have maintenance technicians that you can rely on to manage and maintain those systems, then I think the best next step is to go and look for other manufacturing facilities that have deployed automation with similar types of systems and look at what is the total cost of ownership on those systems. And, you know, I would make sure that, you know, you include kind of the safety and risk assessments, kind of installation costs, the hardware costs, and all the ongoing maintenance and spare parts costs. I would recommend not relying on the first quote that comes out of an integrator's mouth. Because what we found is there are a lot of great integrators out there, but there's also a lot of integrators who will quote a very, very low price. And then once you've paid them 70 or 80% of that, that cost, they'll come back with change orders. They'll say, oh, by the way, you know, you didn't mention to me that your floor is slightly slanted. Or you didn't mention to me that there's a, you know, a beam here. Or, oh, you didn't mention to me that there you know the packages sometimes come down slightly crumpled, or you didn't mention to me that, you know, the boxes are not always taped in this exact orientation. And sometimes they're in this orientation. So for all of these reasons, I'm going to have to charge you an extra $500,000, right? Like that's a very, very common occurrence when you go with system integrators, because they're not incentivized to figure it all out upfront, right? They're incentivized to win the business and then figure it out down the road. And they can just give you change order after change order after change order. And they know you're going to pay it because... Otherwise, you've already paid them $300,000 and it's going to go down the drain. And so it's a very dangerous and precarious position to be in if you're kind of going at it on your own. I think the flip side would be there are very, very reputable integrators out there that don't do things in that way. And they do the work upfront to qualify and verify the deployment. But the other thing that I would ask for is performance commitments. So if you're gonna work with an integrator, ask them to guarantee a certain amount of performance and throughput for more than just the first day, right? Like a lot of them will commit to a site acceptance test, right, they are like, oh, I'll run for eight hours, then you sign off, pay me, and then I'm out. That site acceptance test is generally not very representative of your real-world production, right? So they have to commit to performance for a year or two years at least and that commitment to performance has to not be kind of just a, a vague uptime percentage, but it has to be uh, tied to outcomes, right? If I'm palletizing boxes, I want you to commit to me that you're going to do six boxes a minute for X number of years, or I want you to commit to me that you're going to do. And frankly, there's very, very few integrators in America that will do that, that will make that kind of a commitment. So that's my advice if you're going to go down the DIY route <laughs> and be prepared you know, to to have anywhere from a few hundred thousand to a few million dollars available to fund that process. If you choose to go down the as a service route, I think there are different suppliers out there that have different kinds of as a service offerings. I would look for somebody that has the maintenance footprint, that has the history of of successful deployments and has experience with your type of manufacturing facility. As a service means that they have to be responsible for the ongoing production of that system and looking for folks that can actually stand behind that is
1: critical. Great advice in there. Salman, what's some of the low hanging fruits or starting places where manufacturers might be able to get started with automation?
2: It depends a lot on the, on the industry, of course. I think there are three main sectors that we work with. Number one is like CPG manufacturing. Generally, what we found as the most successful places to start have been end of line packaging in those facilities. So, part and erection, case packing palletizing, and in some cases, you know, moving those pallets around the facility with robots, those are all good places to start. Kind of direct food handling is generally much harder, more expensive, and more custom, because to get robots to do that reliably has historically been a lot harder. The second category that we do a lot of work in is metal fabrication. So machine shops or different kinds of metal fabrication facilities. And we generally put in robots that do machine tending. So it could be loading and unloading, you know, a milling machine, lathe, a press, or some other kind of, you know, like uh, we usually do a suede tending machine. So in all of those scenarios, I would look for operations that are happening in your facility that run at least a certain amount of volume, right? It's not worth it to automate something that happens two hours a day, but if you're doing it for eight or 12 or 14 or 18 hours a day, it becomes more and more likely. The second thing to look out for would be variability in your infeed, right? So if your parts coming in, are roughly similar or at least predictably similar, right? Uh, You can say, okay, I have these five skews and they each have these dimensions and I know, know what the kind of constraints are around those. That's a good thing. If you say, hey, anything could come down, right? Like sometimes they're big, sometimes they're small, sometimes they're left, sometimes they're right, sometimes they're upside down. It's going to be a lot harder, again, doable, but it's related to the usage question, right? So I would look for things where there's a lot of consistency in the infeed, similar on the outfeed requirements, right? Like look for things that are, have a pretty kind of consistent expectation in terms of what happens to the part after the robot's handled it, right? Is it going on a conveyor? Is it going in a box? Is it going in a tray? Is it consistent or is it not consistent? Right? Like that's Those are all kind of really important things to think about. Another category we do a lot of is welding. Welding applications generally we think of them as more human augmentation than purely standalone systems in the sense that you still usually have a welder around who will configure the robot so like they're generally quite easy to configure but you can Grab the head of the robot. You can, you know, pull it around. You can tell it this is exactly how I want the weld to look, and it'll do that pretty consistently. What we found is most welding shops have a good amount of changeover, and so with each changeover, you need the welder to basically set up the system again and set up fixturing and things like that. So what we found as a good use case for welding robots has been where there's a certain amount of repeatability, but one welder can kind of manage five or ten uh, kind of parallel welding system machines or welding robots. And then the last category we've seen a lot of success in is plastic injection molding. That's a really good use case for robotics because injection molding machines you know, take a long time to heat up. Once they're heated up, you want to run them for as long as you possibly can. So what we found is that robots that can, can unload finished parts from an injection molding machine are really, really helpful to the overall use, you know, productivity of that plant. And so that's another kind of task that we've we've seen as particularly good. There are other tasks, of of course, that robots can do well, you know, polishing inspection, deburring, but, you know, there's hundreds more, but, you know, the ones that I've listed so far are, are where we've seen so like kind of lowest hanging fruit, highest ROI, highest impact use cases for automation. Salman, is there
1: anything I didn't ask you about that you'd
2: like to add to the conversation today? Yeah, I mean, I think just generally, like the last thing would be just hopefulness for the American manufacturing industry. Like, I feel like there's so much potential. We've gotten to the point of, of human civilization where kind of technology can have giant impact in the way that we work and live. And I think American manufacturing has an incredible history. I spent almost 20 years living in China and working in the manufacturing sector there as well for part of that time. And I got to see like what an alternative reality looks like. And I think the U.S. absolutely has the ability to be competitive with that. Right? I think a lot of people have a foregone conclusion that we've already lost that race, and I, I just don't agree. Right, I think uh, American manufacturing is incredibly dynamic, incredibly capable, but we have to really make changes. We have to be willing to try new things. We have to be willing to take small risks. We have to be willing to do things differently than they were done 30 or 50 years ago. And I think it's particularly hard because a lot of manufacturing businesses in the US are family owned and operated. And they've been owned by the same family for three or four generations. And so you know departure from what the family has done for the last three generations is really difficult and scary. And I think what separates the people who are going to be around for a long time and the ones who are going to perish ultimately is their ability and willingness to adapt to change. And I think now is the time to try new things. And if we don't, right? Like I think that's the downfall of American manufacturing.
1: Well it's encouraging to hear your hopefulness and I agree wholeheartedly with you. I have the kind of unique privilege of talking to so many manufacturing leaders who are, you know, at the forefront of all kinds of different technology and just you know different mindset for leadership and a different outlook for what manufacturing needs to be versus what it's been. And so I think that uh, I'm right there with you that, you know, we can get enough of the right people focused on how to stay competitive and adapt to change rather than just continuing to do what we've been doing, the future could be very bright.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Likewise.
1: Awesome. Well, Saman, this was a great conversation. Can you tell our audience how they can get in touch with you and where they can learn more about Formic?
2: Yeah, I, our website is easy. It's www.formic.co.co. Or you can just email me. It's the letter S at formic.co. Very simple. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you doing this today. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Joe.
1: You bet. And as for the rest of you, I hope to catch you on the next episode of The Manufacturing Executive.
0: You've been listening to The Manufacturing Executive Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player.